This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Let me just thank all the speakers for the terrific talks that you've all given. Uh, really blew me away. Uh, and also how they fit together. I, I think it really uh, made me think about all sorts of different connections. Uh, we, Pat and I built this, uh, as you saw, uh, this connection with AI sort of on the back of language. But uh, I, I, th- I hope that you also realize that um, that sociality was also a theme that ran through several of the talks uh, and may well be what drove uh, the evolution of language in the last 10 seconds, as we heard, <laughs> so to speak. One of the differences, though, sociality is actually much more common commonly found many different species and we have many different types of sociality with the naked mole rat. I mean, who would have guessed the, that uh, m- mammals could evolve a, a strategy that you find primarily uh, amongst the uh, insects. But the, uh, the, the reality is that even amongst very, very closely related species, you can get very different social structures. Uh, for example, uh, bonobos and chimps. Uh, two two relatives have completely different uh, ways of interacting with each other, uh, uh, and 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 uh, I'm going to leave this to Pascal to actually uh, tell you if you're interested in it. You know the bonobos are much more peaceful; the chimps are much more warlike. Uh, in any case, uh, let me go on now to the very first uh, question. Yeah, okay. This question is for Damian Blasi, and I hope I pronounced your name, Damian properly. Uh, you mentioned non-behemoth language speakers as sort of exceptions to the comparison comparisons that researchers have made between behemoth language speakers and artificial, artificial intelligence processing, for example, Turkish and Samani. Uh, I was wondering if there is any research harnessing the unique nature of non-behemoth language speakers to improve existing AI or to create new ways of using AI. That, that's an excellent question, and I think that's what I was calling with the end of my presentation in the sense that to this point, when you encounter in the AI literature, in the AI fanfare and discussion in general, that some AI system is compared with humans, you can rest assured it means English-speaking humans and of a very particular type of society <laughs> and, and circumstances. Um, so I, I don't know of anyone leveraging the very specific type of um, structures and consequences for recognition that those non-behemoth languages might brought to intelligence in general, and in particular, artificial intelligence. But I would love to see that. Okay, we should explain that uh, Blas couldn't Yes, answer, you go ahead. But there are uh, obviously going to be a lot of questions on uh, large language models. And uh, it's an area I've done some work in, so I can try to handle some of those. And that's because Blaise isn't here. Um, and he isn't because he had to go to Europe. I think Google is in a very kind of intense time at the moment. And although he expected to be here, uh, he couldn't be with us for the question period. Yeah, uh, Google had a cold alert, apparently, after chat GPT was released. So, Terry, do you want to try to... Um, yeah, well, could you read the question? Oh, okay. Um, on agenthood, up to this point, every evolved intelligence that we know of has been in the service of an agent, a being that has goals that ultimately serve its own survival. 
sequence prediction, or at least on the face of it, seems different. I agree. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't butt in. You say that we can think of large language models as an agent in the sense of it being right or wrong and so on. But can we think about goals in the underlying large language models within the context window of a conversation? For example, should we expect an LLM like ChatGBT to generate text that makes the prediction of future text easier by guiding the conversation? If not, why not? That actually raises uh, another deficiency. As I mentioned uh, in my introduction, that um, and, and this was actually repeated by Blaz, that uh, GPT uh, has no long-term memory. Uh, you come back the next day, yeah. uh, there's it doesn't remember what you talked about the previous day. But you know, as long as you're talking, there's a continuous. Uh, it, it can remember what you've been talking about because it's adding to that input that it's being used to generate the next word. But uh, another thing that it lacks, and and we know that humans have, uh, is uh, uh, the goals and the, uh, uh, you know, kind of an internal drive or motivation. Uh, And we know with the parts of the brain in humans, uh, in all animals, actually, that that are uh, providing that, uh, it's uh, the dopamine neurons uh, that uh, are and the basal ganglia that are involved in the reward uh, seeking uh, part of the brain. And, and, and uh, these large language models don't have that. Uh, so th- th- that's part of the reason why they're, they're, uh, they, they really are subhuman uh, in, in, because they, they lack so much that we have evolved in addition to the, the highest level language processing. And, uh, and I want to at this point, you know, make a, 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 a uh, another point about uh, from the last talk that we heard from uh, Polkus, which is that Polkit, which is that uh, you know it took hundreds of millions of years to de- to evolve our motor systems and sensory systems that allow us to be able to survive in the world, right? So language is just a newcomer, and and maybe th- why that maybe that's why it actually was fairly uh, easy as a task just you know just to be able to sequence words but to be able to survive uh, in a non-stationary environment as gerd was saying i mean in a world which is uh, non-stationary that means that uh, the conditions today may not be what they are tomorrow and uh, that you know there may be an earthquake you know there there might be a famine all, all sorts of contingencies that we survive uh, as a species and many other species, right? So there's a whole parts of the brain that are devoted to the, hypoth- the hypothalamus, all of these uh, the parts that are help us maintain homeostasis, uh, feeding and so forth, and procreation. Th- those are by far the most important parts of the brain in terms of survival. And and what we have on top, of course, is uh, uh, the cerebral cortex uh, and the basal ganglia beneath it is is an enhanced way of being able to uh, survive and remember over longer periods of time and perhaps uh, solve more difficult problems. So that's uh, a kind of way of tying together some of the talks that I think we've heard. Uh, let's see, there's another question uh, here for uh, Carmen and uh, John. The auditory feedback experiment highlighted human processing and output adjustment, also showing that there is a limit to output adjustment. Since we are programmed by our own respective cultures and languages, just as AI or machines are programmed by the respective engineers, 
I assume AI will adjust output to limit cons limits constrained by its program. Or if is, is AI free from constraint, meaning it will adjust its output to match the disturbance of the input? Will this freedom, uh, with this freedom, would AI language undergo evolutionary change, producing completely new and uniquely AI language? Thanks, Terry, for the question. So, um, yeah, that's actually a really good question. There's a lot of debate of whether um, current artificial intelligence lacks this cognitive constraints. And in fact, what happens in humans, we think is actually a product of our own constraints because we want to be fast and accurate. We have to restrict and lump the phonemes that we can understand. Therefore, this limit that we see in, in adjustment um, in, in humans, I don't think these kinds of limits are imposed in AI yet because there is no, like the, the, the computation ability of these machines are, they don't have the constraints that we have and we're not imposing them, we're not imposing them in them yet. So I don't think that um, that is currently the state of the art of AI, but I definitely think we should look into these things and what, what is the constraints that we have and how we overcome them in the systems architectures uh, to try to make AI more human-like. I think along with another thing the AI needs to be able to do is uh, how do you uh, integrate constraints? And this is something that John Doyle knows a lot about, how to put constraints into these uh, control systems. Yeah, so, um, so I talked about this biking game, which I did with Terry, and we just put a few minimal constraints in there, and we were able to design optimal controllers that looked like the brain, sort of. And I think if you apply that same thinking here, um, let me just try to make a little analogy, which is it's amazing what we can do with Zoom. Like we're sitting here all over and we're just talking to each other as if we were in the same room. And the computer and the network enables that. And oh, by the way, it's all running the parallel architecture that Ray talked about. To do that, the internet runs a layers levels kind of architecture. Anyway, um, we could be amazed by what this can do, but we could spend all the time talking about what it doesn't do. And the point is, it's just a platform. And so we can add on top of it what we're doing now. And I think language is just a platform. What we run on language is what we're doing now. We run a whole bunch of stuff. We run learning. We, learn, we teach children using language. We coordinate teams using language. So we you do a whole bunch of tasks yeah. with language as just a platform. And so ChatGDP is just taking this amazing language. So one of the things is it's saying a lot about the language. But it says that you can do okay in producing meaning with just prediction on a huge amount of data. And, and that's a platform on which you could, in principle, build a whole lot of things. But it by itself is never going to say whether an utterance is true or false. It'll just say, is it consistent with all the data out there? So this even, and, and I, Ray could say a lot more about this than I do, but the idea of debating truth or false just isn't in GP, it just isn't in these large language models, nor should it be. It's a platform to get you to say meaningful things and not nonsense. It can still lie all the time, and so do people, and the whole internet is full of lies, and so it's going to lie too. Um, so I think posing it that a little bit more and putting it in a larger context, I think, will help 
resolve some of these questions. Right. That that's a good. That's a very good point about uh, comparing it to the uh, humans. Uh, it's really funny that people compare uh, Chat GPT to the ideal human, right? And of course, uh, the average human falls far short. Okay. Yeah, so I, I just let me. I, I did one thing, which was I had a conversation with Chat GTP, GPT about sort of complex systems and emergence and organization stuff. And it, it was mostly wrong, but it wasn't as wrong as the experts in the field. <laughs> you know, so like, like, what should I say about that? I mean, it wasn't as bad as the, you know, the most cited people in the field who are, are completely wrong. Chat GDP was a little wrong, but not that wrong. So it was better than human experts on a domain that I know extremely well. So um, this is for Ray Jackendorf. Your theory of the parallel architecture of language gives an extremely convincing portrayal of the structure of the human faculty for language at the synchronic level. As such, I was wondering if you could expand on the consequences you see this understanding of language has on the study of language diachronically, both at the level of language acquisition for an individual and at the level of evolution of languages over time. That's for, for Ray Jackendorf. To some degree, what you need to go with the parallel architecture is a theory of processing. And I've begun to think about a period of pro, uh, theory of processing to some extent. Um, one of the important things that seems to be coming out of the psycholinguistic literature is that um, the brain is trying everything possible at once with different degrees of success or, or reinforcement, internal reinforcement. Um, and these are in some sort of a balance with each other. But that balance is maintained to some extent independently of what's going on outside in the outside world. When you're acquiring the language, you, you get different. Somebody has to be innovating. Um, let's put it that way. And maybe the easiest place to look at this is the evolution of the emerging sign languages. I don't know if people know about this, um, but there are at this point quite a number of sign languages that have been discovered in remote, isolated villages, plus the great example of Nicaraguan sign language, which is the most um, uh, studied one which uh, has been in existence for about 50 years and it's been followed by linguists. And what we see is that it grows in complexity over time. Now, this growth of complexity cannot have come from hearing other, from hearing other people say it. Somebody had to invent something and it had to catch on. Um, and we don't, and I don't think we know very much about the process of catching on. Um, there's huge, there, what we found um, in such cases is at least at early stages, it looks like something low on our complexity hierarchy, and it's gradually climbing up so that after 50 years of Nicaraguan Sign Language, since it was first created, and it was created by the, for, the, build, the building of a school for deaf children, a deaf residential school in Nicaragua. So these children had no, no um, exposure to any language at all because they were deaf. And they came together and before, long, before very long, all of a sudden there was starting to be something that was language-like. And this has continued to grow over the years. Um, and we can see this growth in phonological, 
sophistication, in syntactic sophistication, in expressivity, that is what kinds of meanings can be invested with, with what kind of precision. I, I, I'm not sure how to answer the question beyond that. I mean, this is how we would start to approach the question of language change. We can look, it's much more difficult when you're looking at established communities um, where the innovation the innovations are coming from all over the place. Um, and, and I don't think we understand very much about how they get stabilized. I think I'll stop there. Well, well, Jack, if I could just follow up, uh, you know, there have been changes in English since Shakespeare's time, right? Yes. So uh, uh, is, 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 has that been tracked and followed and understood? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a huge industry. Actually, before generative grammar, most of linguistics was about the history of languages. Um, and so there's been this change, but it, but we can say this vowel got higher and this vowel got lower and this ending got dropped off and this uh this grammatical construction got innovated um and we can look at, at bilingual communities those um where there's multiple languages going on at once to see how the contact between languages affects yeah. each of the languages but the mechanisms i think are really not understood beyond yeah. sort of you 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 know this innovation has been made and it caught on and this innovation has been made and it didn't and you know you can attach statistics to this and so forth um i'm i was more interested in the case of the sign languages because there was no input mm -hmm. that suggested these changes and it shows us the language faculty really working under uh unusual circumstances so uh, i mean this is kind of a question for Eric as well as Ray. I mean, is there something that is particularly rewarding about mimicry in those animals that do engage in it? And so that in the case of sign language, certain things would catch on because others would, would mimic and it would be rewarding in, in, in some way. So, so that's partly what I wanted to ask Eric, but to follow that is the question of whether, apart from the animals that can do vocal learning, are there lots of animals that can engage in other kinds of mimicry that isn't vocal? So just quickly, um, yes, so uh, what's interesting is some of you may know, uh, molecules like dopamine and oxytocin or yeah. molecules in, in the brain that are involved in reward uh, strengthening synapses and so forth. And so, yes, when when the uh, birds are singing uh, and it's also a dopamine tracer is uh, put through the bloodstream in humans and imaging their brains and speaking, you know, people mm. have actually done that. Uh, there's a lot of dopamine release into the frontal forebrain areas when that's happening. Uh, and for birds, we can get precise. It's in the actual vocal communication areas as well. Huh. Uh, we have a hypothesis. It's not borne out yet, but uh, that's in adults, just like singing in the shower and enjoying it, right? But um, we think what's happening is uh, during development, uh, the infant childhood-like stage or the equivalent in birds is that uh, when you have social reinforcement mm. uh, for imitating something and mommy goes, yay, and so forth, we think that's associated with the release of oxytocin yeah. to strengthen those connections that you imitated the right sound and so you will do it better again the next time. I have one comment on the issue that John brought up 
namely uh, about the comparison that we hear all the time between whether, say, chat GPT or some AI makes more errors than humans. I think the proper question is something different, namely uh, that the systems, humans and AI, differ on the kind of errors we make, independent of how many they are. And so the yeah, uh, in, in driving, it's very clear, humans cause accidents by being drunk, not paying attention, being on their smartphone, or other reasons that wouldn't happen to a autonomous car. But autonomous cars can be fooled by so-called adversarial algorithms that put maybe a few pixels on a traffic sign, and then they think it's not a stop sign, but a uh, sign that limits it to 60 miles and they rush through. So the interesting question, and also the key to understanding the difference between, say, uh, deep neural networks and human intelligence is the kind of error. And we shouldn't talk so much about who does more of that. Yeah? And that's, that. also, yeah. that's also an issue in, in language. Uh, so, the, so the predecessor of GPT-3 was called BERT. BERT had just a few millions parameters. GPT-3 has billions of them. And there was a very telling experiment that shows uh, the smartness of BERT was in part due to identifying correlations that a human would never look at or hmm. not notice. So, for instance, one task was to, there's a claim you should take an umbrella. There's a reason it's raining. And humans have a warrant that's implicit. In this case, it's not good to get wet. So uh, Bert had no warrants implicit, but one gave it the warrants, uh, literally. And it did then the task whether to judge whether the claim is a correct one, as good as humans did. The difference was that it had detected a cue that humans never noticed that most of the warrants had a not in it, just the one, it is not good to get wet. And it claimed that this is a correct answer, which was right most of the time. So that's also called the Russian tank fallacy from a similar uh, instance in this. And I think we should look very closely about the kind of errors and the difference that humans make and versus deep neural networks make. And then we understand both better. And we also don't argue then when will be when will the neural networks be at the level of humans? They won't. Yeah. Maybe in the achievement, yeah, but not in the type of process that's being used. A deep neural network is after after the fact it's a statistical machine that basically a sophisticated version of multiple regressions requires a firm. And it will never be the same as a human intelligence. Well, that's a prediction, uh, <laughs> certainly true now. Uh, but let's go on to another question from Eric. Can I just, I'll just quickly say something? 
Okay. Um, yeah, I agree with all this. I think one thing um, to ask the question is we can go way back to bacteria. And bacteria have a very rich language. And it, it, it's a, an example of the parallel architecture. And, um, and it has many media like we do. We have, you know, we have text, we have voice, we have movies, we have books, we have all sorts of things. So do bacteria. And what you see is an awful lot of the questions that are puzzling us now are very clear in bacteria. And the consequences look quite striking. And so uh, I, I won't elaborate on that further, but I, I, I'm teaching in my class right now. So I'll, let every, I'll send everybody a video on how this all works. But it's another example of language that's surprisingly rich and has really interesting side effects that we should think about because we see them in us too. Okay, well, that's a good segue to the next question. This is aimed at Eric and anyone else who has wants to chime in. So you showed how male mice have laryngeal motor cortex regions, which is essentially equivalent to an ultrasonic mouse song. How many other species of animals do you think this is the case for? Could we be grossly underestimating the kinds of songs in animal, that animals have in the animal kingdom uh, that we just haven't heard yet? Yeah, I think we could be un uh, grossly underestimating things. Um, and I wouldn't say that, you know, we don't, we don't have a species out there that's producing speech like us or, um, or even like, a, you know, what a parrot can do. Uh, but I think, you know, the fact that it's like totally innate, 100% innate, I think might be a gross underestimate. And so um, uh, just a little bit of update on that laryngeal motor cortex region of the mouse. Uh, when we first found it, we thought, okay, this, this was unusual because it was thought to be only in humans and songbirds. Um, it turns out that uh, Peter Strick's lab published something uh, recently this year in primates and marmosats and macaques. They also have a, a region like this. It's not certain if it makes a sparse direct projection like mice. Uh, another a difference we're seeing with mice, though, compared to humans and songbirds. In humans, it appears that the laryngeal motor cortex over here is like separated out from the rest of the motor cortex. Whereas in the mice and non-human primates, it looks like it's interdigitated. It shares neurons controlling other muscle groups as opposed to more dedicated to, to laryngeal function. So maybe what's happened is that in humans, it's become highly specialized and segregated uh, compared to other mammals. Yeah, there's, there's a parallel in the visual system in primates and several other species, cats in particular. If you look at the visual cortex, <clears throat> the uh, number of humans, the number of humans, the number of neurons under a square centimeter is twice what it is anywhere else in the cortex. In, in, in the visual cortex of other species, mm -hmm. like the mouse. And it's also highly segregated into columns. That's to say, uh, with uh, mm -hmm. neurons that have similar function, like right eye versus left eye and uh, vertical versus perpendicular. Those are very, have been separated spatially and, and no doubt uh, have something to do with the fact that primates are extraordinarily visual. Half of our cortex responds to visual stimuli. So uh, again, each each species has its own specialization in terms of which senses it's focusing on and how the, the machinery in the brain is devoted to that those senses. There is a, a question for Ava Wittenberg. Um, it's quite a long question. So if you if you want to stop me at a certain point and then I'll continue later. 
Um, it seemed like most of your talks suggested that with scaling syntactical complexity, the load on pragmatics basically stayed the same. With increasingly complex statements, less pragmatic processing was required to resolve ambiguities in syntax, but more complex sentences can require considering considerable more suppositions or contexts. But you end with the claim that syntactically complex language requires a different pragmatics engine than a simpler system. Are there key differences in the types of pragmatics in simple versus complex languages? I think I, I might have been a little bit misleading then in, in what I said at the end. What I tried to say at the end was not that uh, syntactically complex languages require different pragmatic engines, but what I, I meant was that uh, dram uh, pragmatically, uh, syntactically complex languages give rise to different pragmatic processes than syntactically less uh, complex languages. And so there's the, the causality is the other way around, right? Then, so I, maybe this already partly answers the question. Um, what I want to emphasize though, right, is that whether the load on pragmatics is stable or not is, is a, is a, is a question that is basically impossible to answer, right? Because it depends always on how you define the pragmatics, uh, what, what pragmatics is and what it has to do. It has to, it depends on each utterance that you're trying to process because some utterances that are, um, that an utterance that is short and very well defined by context might be easy to process. Um, the same utterance uttered in a different context might be very hard to understand. And we, we know examples of this from our daily interactions, right? When you say, um, one word that somebody needs to really clarify what you mean with. Um, so as I, um, yeah, I, I, I think this answers the question. Maybe I lost part of the question, but I don't think I did. And the last little bit of the sentence was that if there are differences, this suggests that a decreased load in processing ambiguity is not simply freeing up the same pragmatics engine to work on other things. Yes, I mean, this is a hypothesis that we, we thought a little bit about how, how you would actually test this, right? And um, Ray has already mentioned emerging sign languages. If what we're saying has any bearing on reality, then what you should find is that there are certain pragmatic, core pragmatic processes that we think is part of pragmatics, like presuppositions, like implicatures, that only arise in a stable manner once the developing language or the evolving language has, has, a reached a has reached a certain level of syntactic stability and reliability. So what, the, the, what that means is that um, phenomena like presupposition shouldn't be found in sim simpler, syntactically simpler stages of the language. Um, so this is one area where you could look at um, data to support or or reject this hypothesis. Another area, of course, would be um, to look at non-human primates um, or to at, at other species and how, you know, if you if you broaden your reach of what you think pragmatics is, right, and um, 
in a, in a sense to understand uh, the inferences that other species have to draw, say in the social domain, um, then that that would be another way to look at the problem. Um, finally, there's language evolution in the lab that people are doing quite extensively. And I don't think that pragmatics has played a long, a, a big role in these experiments, but I think this is something that, you know, is just waiting to happen. Thank you. Great. Okay, we have a question for Garrett. Uh, why are humans able to identify a dog after just a few encounters, but it's so hard for our computers? Is there an understanding of the neurological basis for what makes humans able to do that? <laughs> If I would know the answer to this question, I think that, or anyone knows that, would be a Nobel Prize for that. <laughs> yeah. And and I'm also not a, a, a neuroscientist. Yeah. I rather look at the heuristics that people use at a, at a higher level to uh, make inferences. But it's clearly a key difference between human intelligence and machine intelligence. And it also shows that uh, that kind of machine intelligence we're talking about are deep neural networks. And they are statistical machines, mm -hmm. they cor they correlations, that's what it is. And so they have many, many, many parameters. So they need lots and lots of data to estimate these parameters. A child doesn't work this way. There are no parameters to estimate. It's not a statistical machine. And the problem is that we cannot say how it is doing this. But what we know is one example or two is sufficient. Yeah, that reminds me of a story about Richard Feynman. Uh, they, someone once asked him, how many experimental examples do you need in order to build generalize and, and create a, a law or a theory? And he said, it would be nice to have one. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, there is a question for Allison. And the question is this, is there a known or hypothesized mechanism for how naked mole rats generate their vocalization patterns, especially when compared to other species in the same family? I think this is actually quite an um, easy answer. Um, no, at the moment, there's no <laughs> hypothesis. Um, the field is is generally quite new. Um, I think we're we're drawing inspiration from from work that's been done in, in other rodents, some of which Eric presented today very nicely. And I think um, um, I think you know characterizing the anatomy a bit more is something that we that we need to do, and also you know kind of putting that in the social context of what's the the demand that these animals need this flexibility for um, will allow us to test that a bit more. Um, so yeah, short question, short answer. I hope in a few years we'll we'll have more information about this. Okay, so a question for Pulkit. Uh, in your talk, you give examples of how skills that we learn, such as language and chess, are relatively easy for computational systems to learn, while skills that evolve, such as physical interactions with the world, are much more difficult. One of the clearest differences between the two is that evolution involves changing our physical properties. Is there anything analogous to this in the AI world? So maybe there are, there are two answers to this question. So one is, you know, when we are training these policies, you know, some people train them in simulations. And people do vary physical properties like friction, mass, you know, to emulate what kind of new conditions, you know, the agent is going to be seeing. 
right? So maybe in one way, one can think about, you know, this whole scheme of collecting large amounts of data is to get this diversity. And, you know, using this diversity, one hopes that one can generalize. Now, the other question, the other interpretation is, you know, are physical bodies changing? And, you know, so one way to think about it is that to solve a task, you know, sometimes having the right physical body will make the task be easier. And one could also ask the question, you know, you know, you know, do do people do it? So I think there are many people who are looking at coevolution of, you know, bodies and tasks, but also if what happens if my arm becomes becomes longer? Or for example, if you pick up a tool, then one way to think of the tool is an extension of your arm. And then how do we end up, you know, using that tool? So I definitely think there are instantiations in the work that people are doing where physical parameters and properties are changing. You know, it's not appreciated that the body is as complex as the brain. And that's probably why robotics is so difficult because the the, the robots don't have as flexible and, and uh, you know, uh, can't uh, deal with uh, hundreds of degrees of freedom at the same time, which is what the brain is able to do with, with all the muscles that we have. But uh, the, the, the body actually computes in the sense that the physical properties of the body... Yeah make things uh, easier to control uh, because of the fact that they already are organized in such a way that uh, some, some, at least some actions are very, very natural and easy to control. Yeah. I, mean, I couldn't agree more on that point. Right. I mean, that's like the whole field of morphological computation where the body makes everything be much easier. Right. I think Eric wanted to say something. Yeah. Eric yeah, has a question. Yeah. Just, just a quick note to that. Uh, we should be careful about thinking about, in this case, I, I assume the person is asking about spoken language, um, even sign language, right? The, the, there is physical interaction with the environment. It's to vibrate the uh, molecules of sound in the air. And in fact, the larynx has the most fastest firing muscles in the entire body uh, outside the, the lateral rectus of the eye. Uh, and so it requires a brain circuit that can control really rapid firing interaction with the environment. So the question is, Eric, is there a downside to having the circuitry for the direct connection uh, from cortex to to the laryngeal muscles? Is, is there a cost? And if there isn't a cost, why didn't it evolve much more often? Well, there there, there is a cost of, of having brain circuits to control very rapidly firing muscles that must v- vibrate sound because you get a lot of toxicity of glutamate and calcium with too much of, of that going ah, on. So people right? who talk too much uh, have that problem. That, that's <laughs> right. They have to have a good neural protection system. All right. Uh, but the other uh, hypothesis that I come up with in uh, Kaz Okanoya is um, in terms of the vocal learning ability itself and the direct projection, that, that whole thing, what the downside of that is, is that um, the the once you modify all your sounds and so forth, it's hard for other species to habituate to you, to what you're saying. And so more likely you'll be eaten and recognized. And so you'll notice that a number of the mammalian vocal learners are at the top of the food chain or in the ultrasonic range where others can't hear them. And some of the vocal learning birds come from apex predators. So I think you you have to be, um, um, let's say the downside is being selected against. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay, thanks. That's why it could be rare. I think maybe we have one last question, and and then we should let our European colleagues go to bed. 
Um, and the last question is open to everyone on the panel. Is AI being employed to translate languages such as linear B or Indus Valley script or non-human communication? Not that I know of. I mean, but some the problem is not to distinguish the symbols, but to figure out what they mean. And you can't just tell that from a, a, a statistical distribution. Also, in the, the point Gerd was making, was you need lots of data, and often That's much, we only yeah. have fragments of, of, of some if of these. If we could data. find another species with an internet, we could probably. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yes, we're okay. Well, um, Eric, did you want to make a point? No, no, I said Damon has his hand up. Just oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't see that. Yes, Damon, please go ahead. Yes. Thank you. I just wanted to briefly mention that there's at least two large-scale projects that are aimed at applying contemporary self-supervised deep learning techniques to animal communication uh, systems. One of those is ESP, Earth Species Project, and the other one is SETI. Um, I, I, I can reach out for the URLs of this project, but both are based on a similar premise, which is using deep learning models and, and again, specif specifically self-supervised models, which do not require any labeling of data. So to figure out what's going on with this communication systems and presumably see what are the behavioral correlates they have. Uh, I'm not part of any of these endeavors, so I, I, I don't feel comfortable to talk about them. But this is a very hot topic, and there's a lot of developments going on right now. Interesting. The, the, yeah. something, something else that has emerged, actually, <clears throat> is that if you feed, uh, you know, uh, the, the, these enormous uh, amounts of data, uh, that, that uh, these, what we were discovering is that these uh, large language models can do more than just language, you know, uh, natural language. <laughs> they can write computer programs. Right. And that was a big surprise. It was not something people expected. And, and you know, there may be other capabilities, too, that will emerge if, if, if you uh, uh, ask the right questions or have, uh, you know, uh, some some kind of a, uh, a problem that nobody has, uh, you know, is, is trying to someone's trying to solve that, you know, it may. And the other thing that Keep in mind, uh, and these may be statistical systems, but they're also creative. Uh, for example, in the Go program uh, for that uh, DeepMind produced, it wasn't just a deep learning network. It was also a reinforcement learning algorithm, which represented uh, the uh, actually a control model for being able to learn sequences of actions to reach goals. And this is the reward system that we have in our own brains. And this is an example of what I was telling you further is that if you add additional parts of the brain to the model, you can actually get additional capabilities. Now, what, what was amazing about Go and earlier by backgammon was solved in the, in the 80s, uh, 90s actually by Jerry Tesaro at IBM uh, Research, uh, is that it would surprise humans because it would come up with creative moves that no human had ever thought of before that were really uh, better and a whole, not just specific moves, but whole strategies. And uh, it did that by playing itself. And that was what's remarkable. I mean, if you keep playing with humans, keep playing with other humans. And of course they, they accumulate knowledge and, and that uh, diffuses through the community. But when you have a, a, a program that plays itself, 
it can go off in new directions and and explore much more sophisticated parts of the of the gameplay uh, and strategies. So uh, again, uh, the, the, I think you know there are limitations. There are many limitations that AI has right now. But well, if you just look at the trajectory in terms of the capabilities uh, and also the improvements that are made, uh, where, where we're at right now is probably at the early Wright Brothers stage, right? In other words, we're off the ground, not moving very fast, but the important thing is that uh, it, it's uh, on the right trajectory with more improvements and uh, more better architectures and adding a lot more parts of the brain. Uh, it it will uh, have you know it, it'll have <laughs> who knows uh, capabilities that we can't even imagine. I think the the Wright brothers' story is interesting if you just go back and look at how they describe their situation at the time. I think it's very relevant, and that's kind of been lost. You have to really go back and look at it. Um, but the other thing was, um, uh, well, I'll just I'll I'll say that. Somebody else wants to talk. Well, the uh, Bright Brothers are, are really is a, a, an analogy to what happened in the 80s when uh, the traditional AI, based on rules and, and logic, uh, was you know the only game in town. Uh, they, they, they made fun of neural networks because, uh, oh, why? What do you learn from birds? Because, you know, they flap their wings and, you know, do jets flap their wings? Ha ha. But the reality is that what the Wright brothers actually did. Yes. There's yes. a beautiful. There's a beautiful biography of the Wright brothers. Yep. David, what's his name? McCulloch. McCulloch. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I highly recommend this this book. Uh, well, first of all, they they paid a lot of attention to birds that are gliding, and why? And the reason is that they were doing it with very little power, and it had to do with their wing. And airfoils. And so what did they do? They built a wind tunnel and they tested airfoils. And so they were good scientists and engineers. And then they looked at the feathers, you know, and ha ha, what are you going to learn by looking at what feathers are made from, right? Well, they looked at the feathers and said, look, it's extremely stiff, even though it's very light. And the feathers make it, a, give it a large surface area. So what do they do? Instead of making the airplanes out of metal, which is what the government was doing, they made it out of wood, which is light, and they had spars so that it was just an outline, and they put canvas over it, which had a lot of surface area. So optimizing things by looking at nature is what we are doing now, extracting the principles like the Wright brothers did, and and building on that. But the other thing they did, which was they said was the most important part, is they watched birds, how birds controlled flight. And birds would tip the the feathers and make turns and so it was the control part that they learned from birds that they implemented um and of course they hung on to it too long eventually the technology changed and they were behind but uh but the but terry the one thing about the go game which is different than chat gpt is the the go game does dynamic programming through reinforcement learning and that lets you interpolate from data in a way that makes you get you know uh, amazing new uh, new moves, and so uh, if we if we could get a, a control oriented, functioning in the world version of dynamic programming in which we would put language, that would be I think that would change a lot of things. So you want it you want language in the context of solving problems in the real world that uses dynamic programming reinforcement learning, and then all these large language models are going to be fabulous at doing that in principle in principle. But I, but again, I have no idea how to implement that. So I want to thank all the panelists. Um, it, it's, it's tough putting 
what you have to say into a small capsule and people did it brilliantly and and uh, we are really really grateful for that and may i now introduce uh for closing remarks uh katarina samenda ferry who is the co-director of of carta and we shall see you all tomorrow thank you hello everyone uh my name is katarina samenda ferry and i'm a co-director for carta here at the University of California in San Diego. Um, on behalf of the CARTA leadership, um, we hope that you have enjoyed this symposium and the discussion provided by our amazing co-chairs and featured speakers. Many thanks to them for their efforts and to everyone who contributed to the success of this virtual CARTA uh, symposium that includes our generous sponsors and supporters, and of course, um, you our audience members. Um, now, CARTA invites you to join us again on May 19, 2023, as we present the role of myth in anthropogeny. For this upcoming event, we are excited to welcome you back to the Salk Institute for Biological Studies here in La Jolla, California. Our global audience members need not fear in keeping with long-standing CARTA practice, this in-person symposium will also be live-streamed by UCSD TV with recordings available online after the event. So please check the CARTA website, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn pages for updates. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again at an upcoming CARTA symposium, whether that is in person or online. Uh, and until then, take care, everyone. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.